Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. So today is the last uh, installment of our Off to Work We Go series. Some of you are probably thinking, I'm so glad. How how can anybody talk for four weeks on one thing like that? But uh, there's actually a lot that the Bible has to say about our work, and so we're going to wrap that up today. I want to just take a real quick peek ahead to the next three weeks. You know, our our, um, country has been through a lot in 2020 already. Anybody, would you like a do-over on 2020? Could we just like hit the reset button and, and re-spin this thing and try and see if we can get a different outcome? It's been a tough, tough year so far. And um, one of the things that's developing and we have seen over the last month or two is how we're treating each other. Um, we're, we're politically, we're very divided. Um, you know, there's two sides generally, and those two sides are not really talking, they're yelling. And um, it's not a good look, to be honest. It's just not a very good look. And so I am going to do a series for the next three weeks called Talking Points. And I would appreciate your prayers, because if I'm going to talk about anything that has even remotely close to political stuff, um, I need you to pray for me, okay? Because... Um, I think God has some things to say to us in the midst of all that, and I think it'll be a very productive three weeks for us. But as always, I don't want to step in it. I don't want to, uh, you know, do something out of bounds or say the wrong thing, and, and the potential for me to do that in that series is pretty great. So please be praying for me. I, I wonder, how many of you are HGTV fans? HGTV? Yeah, if you want a, a study and, and you want to, uh, an exercise in resisting temptation and covetousness, just watch HGTV. That's all you got to do because you watch a little bit of that and you're like, yeah, I want one of those and I'd like to have that and I'd like to have that. I don't want to pay for it and I don't want to do that work, but I want one of those. Um, so maybe you recognize if you watch HGTV, you recognize these two guys, Drew and Jonathan Scott, the Property Brothers. Yeah, I see smiles on your faces. You like, you like the Property Brothers. So if you haven't seen this show, uh, what they do is, um, you know, they find some family that's looking to move into a house, and generally speaking, it's the same for all of us. We can't afford what we really want, right? Like we, we want the bigger house and can't ever afford that one. But they find some family that's got some kids in special situation maybe, and they need to live here, but they can't afford anything here. And so that's when they come to the property brothers. The property bro- brothers step in and they say, basically, for X amount of dollars and, and give us six weeks or eight weeks or however long it's going to take, we will buy this fixer-upper house. We're going to work on it and do some things, open some things up, change some of the you know, plumbing or electrical issues or whatever's going on with the house that, that makes it a fixer-upper to begin with. And at the end, we're going to hand you the keys and it's going to be your house. And that's really what the show is. And so at the very end of the show is always, and it's the same with all these reality shows, 
uh, especially where property is concerned, you, you know, at the end of the show, they, they bring the family in, either blindfolded or some way, and they, they do this reveal of the house. And, you know, all of a sudden this family gets to see what, they, they remembered what it was, and now they get to see it all finished and all done and all changed. And they're like, oh my goodness, I can't even believe that, you know, we get to live here. This is our, this is our place now. And so uh, what I'm going to argue today is that there is something of God in that. And you say, okay, Brett, there's something of God in granite countertops and fine cabinetry? No, that's not, that's not the argument at all. Um, but there is something of God in the ability to look at something and to bring chaos, bring order out of the chaos, right? To look at something and say, you know what, we can fix that. We can change that. We can, we can do some things and make that a better situation. Um, there's something of God in the ability of a tradesman to come upon a particular thing and say, you know what, I've got skills to fix that. A plumber, an electrician, or a carpenter who, who happens on something and they bring their, their, their wonderful skills, their framing work to bear, and then out of that comes something beautiful. I think that there's something of God in the ability to, to take an organizational perspective to things and to bring beauty and order out of chaos. Now, we've been in this series, we've been looking at this passage of Scripture. It's very familiar to us, Genesis 1. It says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Chaos, and God begins to speak into that chaos and create. And by the end of his creation, he steps back and he looks at what he's done, and he says, not only is it good, but he says, it's very good. It's very good. And then we come to this very important passage in the creation story. So God created mankind in his own image. Very important. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So part of what it means to be created in the image of God is to be able to create order out of chaos, which is pretty much what work is. It's bringing order out of the chaos. So Really, throughout this series, what we've been saying is that your work matters. Your work matters to God. It matters to your family. It matters to your boss. It matters to your coworkers, and it should matter to, to you. Now, I'm sure as I've preached this series, as I've kind of gone along, you've, maybe somebody has had the thought as I've been preaching all this, okay, Brett, I get it. I understand what you're trying to do. But, dude, you, you, don't, you don't have any idea where I work and what it's like there. I, I'm not where I want to be. I'm not doing what I want to do. I, I'm not passionate about it. And to be honest, Brett, I just feel stuck. I don't feel like I'm moving forward. How in the world does this, whatever that work would be, does this, how in the world does it matter to God? Today, we talk about work that we don't particularly like. Right? You're, you're just in a job and you'd say, Brett, to be honest with you, I just don't like it. So, so I want to take a trip with you. Let's, let's take a little trip. You see in the bottom of the screen there to the right, uh, the city of Jerusalem. This is where Jesus is crucified. He's resurrected. This really is where the story of Jesus emanates. It spreads from Jerusalem, spreads pretty quickly, um, very quickly, really, when you consider how far it made it in such a brief period of time. And it'll, it'll eventually make its way north and to the west, and it's going to reach the cities of Corinth, Ephesus, and Colossae. It's going to reach, the message of Christ is going to reach all of the Mediterranean rim. And uh, one of the cities that it reaches is the city of Colossae. Now, Colossae today is, um, uh, you know, it's, 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 there's not a whole lot there. Colossians is basically a tutorial that Paul wrote 
to the young believers there to, to basically try to figure out how their faith impacts their life. As Paul wrote this to the young converts in, in the city of Colossae, he's trying to help them understand their identity in Jesus. And if you were to go there today, there's not a whole lot to see. There's basically a mound, and it has not been excavated. It's just a mound. We, and and uh, archaeologists would refer to that, I think, as a tell. It's a tell. It hasn't been excavated. But if you were to go just up the road a little bit, I think north, uh, to the city of Hierapolis, Hierapolis, um, you would find a city that has been excavated, and in that city you would see this. And this is the theater in the city of Hierapolis. This gives us some idea of what things might have looked like in the time of Christ. Now, you know, you don't look at that for very long that you, it starts to dawn on you um, real people, <laughs> Real engineers, real design work, mathematicians, the intellectual capacity to conceive of this and the grunt work necessary to pack in all of the stone to make something like that happen. And then you realize there were city managers, there are city organizers, there's local government, there are retailers, wholesalers, there are artists involved. You know, there are a lot of people who are bringing their best effort, their best skills to bear on this particular thing. And so when I read to you Colossians 3.17, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. So here's what I want you to understand. These instructions were given to slaves. Okay? Slaves who did not choose their work, slaves who were not particularly passionate about what it was that they were doing, they didn't necessarily like their work. They didn't have any choice. Colossians chapter 3, Paul will narrow his comments to those who are enslaved, and he says to them, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. These people didn't choose their work. And whether or not they liked their work was irrelevant. It was not only a good reminder for the slaves in Colossae. This is a very good lesson for us as well. Um, whether or not you choose your work, whether or not you like your work, whether or not you think that you're going to be there for 10 years or just, you, you know, you're going to be there just uh, temporarily, work at it with all your heart. That is a, a great fundamental reminder for those of us who are in what we might refer to as for now jobs. You say, Brett, um, you know, this isn't what I want to be doing 20 years from now. This is just what I'm doing for now. You know, I, I might, our, we're waiting for our son to graduate or we're, we're waiting on this to happen. Then we're going to move and then I'll, I'll pursue, you know, what I want to be doing then. But this is just a for now job. And I think it's also a great reminder for those of us who work for great companies, but even great companies and organizations from time to time go through challenging seasons. You know, times when you say, boy, I work with a great group of people, I like what I'm doing, but it's just not a whole lot of fun right now. And Paul writes to them, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. It's important for all of us as we find ourselves in challenging seasons, even with great companies. So here's a little secret. I really, really like my job, okay? I really like my job. Now, here's another secret. I don't like all parts of my job equally all the time, right? There's certain things I've had to do some things this week that if, if you, if, if somebody said, hey, we want you to take Brett's place and we want you to do that this week, you would have said, hard pass. I don't want to do that, right? Sometimes my job entails doing some things that are not a lot of fun. We all have jobs like that. Um, ask a mother, do you enjoy being a mother? Oh, I love being a mother. Now ask her, do you love being a mother in equal parts of all parts of the job all the time? And she would say, no, no, I don't. 
Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. This is not only a reminder for the slaves. Living in Colossae is a great reminder for those of us where the work we do, whether it's paid or unpaid, is not necessarily something that we enjoy all the time. So today I want to talk about five things we forget. And, you know, I'm going to stand up here and say your work matters to God. And you say, well, Brad, I get that, but I'm going to forget that. So here's... When we remember these things, it can revolutionize the way we view ourselves. It can revolutionize the way we view our coworkers and our relationship with the way we view our work. Five things we forget. Number one, I forget who I'm working for. I forget who I'm working for. Colossians chapter 3, verse 22. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with the sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. In other words, he says there should be no difference in, in the way you work, whether or not your boss is watching you or isn't watching you. You ever worked with somebody that only worked when the boss was around? Isn't that frustrating? You know, you're busting your tail all the time, and then suddenly the other guy starts working really hard, and you don't even need to know. You, just, you know the boss is around because he's working hard all of a sudden, Right? Um, it can be frustrating to go through that. And he says, listen, with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord, do it for Jesus. You bring your good work as a slave out of reverence for Jesus. Well, Brett, it doesn't really say the word work there. Well, it doesn't in verse 22, but as we've been looking at this verse 23, it does. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Paul breaks this off for people who are doing everyday common tasks and he says you're doing the lord's work you know what the the boss you have the master you have the the estate that you work for may not be worthy of your best effort or your best creativity or your best energy but the lord is absolutely worthy of your best effort and your best energy and your best attitude and your best creativity so this completely reframes the way we think about the lord's work And he's indicating that slaves who are doing common, everyday, ordinary tasks are doing the Lord's work. Last week, uh, this past week, I've done some things as a pastor, right, that fall under my purview as pastor. Like, um, I'm not, I mean, it's not that I'm not taking personal uh, face-to-face appointments, but just in the season we're in, it seems like most of what I'm doing is on the phone or, or done through digital means somehow, but I was on the phone this week with someone who's really, really worked up about this COVID thing, right? Like they're scared, they're afraid, and, and they're, they're worried about the world, and, and they're worried about their kids, and they're worried about a lot of things, and this person was very, very upset, and so part of my job was to listen and to, to, to be empathetic and to be compassionate and then to also try to encourage and, and help them to, you know, to be, to be sustained through it all. Um, also this week, I've had a conversation with a very dear friend of mine, a person that um, is associated with Cross Lane, and um, they have some life-threatening health issues. And they had to go for some imaging this week, and so I sent a little text message and just said, hey, I'm thinking about you and praying for you and hope things go well today. And they responded and said, man, you, just, you, you do not know how timely that text was, how much it meant to me. And, um, you know, later we talked and I prayed with them over the phone. And um, so that's some of what I've done this week. And we would refer to that as the Lord's work, right? Like we've always kind of called that stuff the Lord's work. But here's what else I've done. I made beds this week. 
I did dishes. I took out the trash. I cleaned up around the house. I cleaned up my office space. Um, And I would argue that that also is the Lord's work. And you would say, well, Brett, wait a minute. You're not telling me that God is equally pleased with pastoring and housework. Is that what you're telling me, that they're on the same level? And I would say, yes, that's what I'm telling you. That's exactly what I'm telling you. Well, Brett, where in the world would you get an idea like that? And the answer is from this guy. (laughs) I get it from him. William Tyndale. If you have a a Bible in your possession, if you you own a Bible, you have this man to thank for that Bible because he is the one who is responsible for having translated our our Bible. And and, uh, this guy was a bit of a rebel, okay? This guy, at great risk of his own life, in fact, he was killed. He was a martyr for the faith. They killed him for his belief in Jesus. Um, he died a not very fun death at all. But uh, we owe a lot to William Tyndale. And, and uh, back in Tyndale's day, this was a revolutionary idea that, that the work you would do every day would be considered the Lord's work. It was revolutionary even to Tyndale. You know, back then, if you wanted to be recognized as doing the Lord's work, you needed to be a priest. You had to be a nun or a monk or a pastor of some kind, and that was considered spiritual work. They might have used the expression sacred work. And so what developed over time, and I think we do that even to this day, I'm guilty of doing this just in thinking of, in terms of sacred and, and secular, right? We think about the sacred and we think about the secular, and often we are dividing those two things. We put some things in a sacred camp and we put some things in a secular camp And I really think we do a disservice in our faith and we do a disservice oftentimes to God by doing that because when we separate things like that, we don't approach them always the way we should. And so as Tyndale started to look through the scriptures, he realized that he was doing that. And it was when he started to read some of these passages in Colossians that he said, wait a minute, this idea of putting certain things in a secular camp and other things in a sacred camp, we got to quit doing that. Because Tyndale would have said it totally erases the line between sacred and secular. Uh, Both can be done in a way that pleases God. Tyndale said this, if we look externally, there is a difference between washing dishes and preaching the word of God. But as touching to please God, there is no difference at all. So you think about this, what if your creator is more pleased with dishes washed well than a sermon preached badly? What if God loves the fact that we bring our energy and our creativity and, our, and our, our very best to common ordinary tasks and simply do them well? We often forget who we're working for. I don't know who signs your checks, but um, uh, chances are good when you get your check, on the, maybe you don't even see it anymore, maybe it's direct deposited, that's the world we live in, but for those of you who are still getting physical checks, if you look at it, I doubt seriously it has Jesus' name written on it, Right? I work for a church. I work for Cross Lane. But even my check doesn't have Jesus' name on it. It's got the name of one of our trustees. It comes and and they, they have signed it. But I think Jesus would whisper to me and Jesus would whisper to you, remember, you're working for me. You're working for me. There's a powerful, short, but very uncomplicated prayer that we can pray. And I think if you offered it regularly, it might transform the way you do your job. And the prayer is this, Jesus, I'm yours today. Jesus, I'm yours today. What if the next time you pulled into your place of work and you're sitting there in your car 
Before you get out, you just simply turned off your car, you bowed your head, and you prayed that one simple prayer. Jesus, I'm yours today. How would that change things? You know what? The other people on the other side of, the, of, the, of that building, uh, inside that building, they don't, they're not thinking that. They may not be worthy of my best. They may not be worthy of my best ability or creativity or energy. But you are, and I work for you. I'm yours today. Whenever I go to work, um, if you've ever seen me arriving for the day or leaving for the day, you see this behind me. I, this goes with me. If I travel, this goes with me. This, has, this is basically a rolling office for me, and it has everything I need and a lot of things I want, like suckers are in here, okay? Uh, I have suckers in here. I have um, my laptop is in here. I have a reader in here. I have books. I have notebooks. I have a digital notebook that I can write on. I have, uh, you know, a DVD component to plug into my computer. I have eyeglasses, spare eyeglasses. All my keys are attached to the back. Um, pins, you, you name it, and of course, suckers. I've got suckers for, for when I just really need to you know, calm down. But um, whenever I leave for the day to go to work, I find myself doing this inventory. Really, whenever I do this in any capacity, if I'm going to the store, I do this. There's three things that I have to have with me. And before I leave, I take an inventory to make sure I have those three things. So I have my cell phone. Do I have my keys? Do I have my wallet? Cell phone, keys, wallet. And so every time I leave, I'm always thinking, cell phone, keys, wallet. Now, I know I have everything in here, but it's, it's those things I'm going to carry in my hand. And maybe you're that way. If you're like a nurse and you're getting ready to leave, there's certain things you've got to have at work. Do I have my stethoscope? Do, do I have my notebook or my pens? Do I have my name badge? If you're a, you know, if you're a construction person, do you have your tools? Do you have your tool belt? You got the right shoes on, you know, you have good clothes to, to work in, you know, those kinds of things. And sometimes we'll stand there and we'll say to ourselves, I feel like I'm forgetting something. I, I just, I feel like I'm forgetting something. You know, is it myself, my, I got cell phone, keys, glasses, name badge, um, my wallet or my purse. Sometimes what we're forgetting is who we are working for. It's really important to remember that you're working for Jesus. Second thing we forget is we forget to bring our heart. Let's look at verse 23 again, but I've highlighted it differently this time. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. This is a phrase that I've heard from time to time as I talk to people. I just want to find work that I'm passionate about. You ever heard somebody say that? I just want to find work that I'm passionate about. Um, the verses that we just looked at rephrase that whole conversation, and it's really not about finding work that you're passionate about. This is about bringing passion to the work that you already have, bringing passion to the job that you may or may not be very passionate about now. The question isn't how can I find and be passionate at work, but the question becomes how do I bring passion to a job that I'm not crazy about? I'm looking for work that is worthy of my heart, but if, uh, until I find that, my employer will not get my best. My employer will not get my best energy, not my best effort, not my best attitude, not my best creativity. They will not get the best of me. And if, I'm just telling you that if that's the way you think, then you are destined to delivering a life of work that is basically mediocre at best. And I just don't think that's what we want to be. 
This isn't about finding work worthy of your passion. This is about bringing passion to the the work that you may or may not love. Uh, I want us to look at three lines here, and these lines kind of get a little more uh, depressing as they go. To get a really good job, you have to, uh, to, get, to, to get a really good job, you have to be really good at something, right? And then to get really good at something, this is where it really becomes a bummer, to get really good at something, it takes time. It takes time to get really good at something. It takes time to hone a skill. Um, a book that I would recommend for you is a book by a guy named Malcolm Gladwell. He wrote a book called Outliers. And in that book, if you've ever heard somebody refer to 10,000 hours, that's where that idea comes from. It comes from Gladwell. And Gladwell said that when you invest 10,000 hours in any pursuit, you will become an expert in that particular area. And he, you know, he talks about hockey players. He talks about a lot of things in the book. But one of the things he talks about are the Beatles, and he says when the Beatles were forming as a band, they, they got this gig where they had to basically play every single night, and they had to play for like four or five hours a night, which what they soon discovered was we need to write more material, we need to get better. And so as they kept just chipping away every night, playing four and five hours, you know, six, seven nights a week, they got really, really good because the hours started to stack up. And, and that's how the Beatles became the Beatles. What this means is you can spend months and even years grinding away, cultivating a skill that you later can, can leverage into a passion area that, that may not have been a passion area when you first started. I am uh, in my 20th year as the pastor at Cross Lane. I was the youth pastor before that. had been here about eight and a half years before that. But in May, it, it became the 20-year anniversary of me actually being the pastor. And I can still remember very clearly in that first year, especially the, about this time 20 years ago, I was lost. I, to, to say that I had a passion for this, I, you would not have said that I had a passion for this. And in fact, my, my words to the elders were, you know, they said, would you be willing to be the pastor? And I said, well, I'll do it for six months. And I think we'll all know inside of six months that I don't have any business doing this job. And so that's what I did. I just tried to do the best I could, tried to figure some things out. But what happened was I started to hone my skill. I started to work on some things and parts of it were easy and parts of it were hard. And I just kept working on it and working on it. And then one day I looked up and realized I had fallen in love with the job that I had. You know, when you hear somebody say, I'm really passionate about my job, chances are pretty good they're not 20 or 21 years old. You don't hear 20, 21, 22-year-olds very often. I'm not saying it doesn't happen ever. But you generally don't hear people that young say things like that. One of the reasons is it takes time to hone your skills, and as you hone your skills, you're later, you're, you're later able to leverage that into a passion area. And sometimes it just takes time. Often during that time, you're not working in a job doing tasks that you feel like you're very good at. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not human masters. This is especially true for those of you who are in the grind, honing a skill getting good at something. And one day you're going to leverage that into something that you're really passionate about it, but you're not there today. There's a guy named Chuck Close. Chuck Close uh, takes these massive, he makes big photographs and he paints these big pictures. 
Um, it's his basic medium and, and form of doing things. And somebody walked up to Chuck Close one, one time and said, hey, you know, what do you do for inspiration? Where do you find inspiration? And his response was, I don't wait for inspiration to strike. In fact, what Chuck Close said was, inspiration is for amateurs. <laughs> the rest of us just show up and get to work. Some people are waiting for the clouds to part and the lightning to strike you know, that lightning strike of inspiration, and then they can step into something and do it. Chuck says, no, just sit in the chair and start working. There's power in showing up. There's power in bringing your best self to the project. Um, three weeks ago, I think it was three weeks ago, pretty sure it was three weeks ago, we were still doing three services. It was the last Sunday we were going to do three services, which I'm so glad we're back to two. Can I just tell you? I don't know why, but that third service is just like a killer. And I've known guys that preach four and five times on Sunday and don't know how they do it, to be honest with you. But um, this was the last Sunday I was going to preach three sermons on Sunday. And I woke up that morning very early and I just didn't feel well. You know, you have those days. And in fact, for me, it was uh, something going on with my ear and my head was hurting and I just didn't feel good at all. And, and um, about every 15 seconds, this piercing pain would happen up around my right ear. And I came to work, and Cheryl saw me, and, and she said, you do not look good, which you just love that. That's always, you know, that's a bonus. Whenever your coworkers, <laughs> you do not look good. Um, I said, I don't feel great. And, and so I had what would later be diagnosed as an ear infection. And so what that turns out to be is about every 15 seconds on average I would get this piercing pain in my head while I'm trying to talk to you and and so you know you're preaching away and trying to bring your best voice and your best concentration your best energy and and every 15 seconds it's like I'm here <laughs> you know, I'm here I'm not going anywhere and so I preached for three services with this unbelievable pain in my head and uh, sometime later in that week, I was with a really good friend of mine who happened to be here on that Sunday, and I was just telling him, I said, he said, you did a good job Sunday. And I said, thanks. I said, I, I didn't feel very good Sunday. He said, what was wrong? And I told him what was going on. He said, boy, you would never have known that by just watching you. He said, I had no idea you didn't feel good. So why did I do that? Well, one of the reasons that I do that is because I don't want to detract from the message that I'm trying to, to relay to you. And if I get up here and I'm moping around and act like I don't feel good, you're, you're going to be more thinking about that than you are what I'm trying to say. I don't want that. I don't want anything to get in between you and me and what I'm trying to say. Second thing is, I'm not looking for your sympathy. That doesn't help anybody, so I'm not trying to get you to feel sorry for me. And then the third thing and the really important thing is, I'm trying to do what Paul says, which is, whatever you do, work at it with your whole heart as working for the Lord, not human masters. You're doing this for me. I want to honor Christ and want to give him my very best. He gave himself for me. In fact, he overcame way more than an earache. Can we agree? Jesus overcame way more than an earache. The best I, the best I can do is wake up and try to overcome whatever it is that's a problem for me. There's something deep going on in this relationship between Paul and these slaves at Colossians. Paul is not addressing just any old slaves anywhere. He's addressing specifically these slaves who find themselves in the church at Colossae, and they've come to Christ, and, and, and now they've had a Jesus encounter, and Jesus is changing their life. And he's saying, listen, you might 
have the same boss, you might work on the same estate, but Jesus now lives in your heart and you are different. You should be changed. Something has happened to you. You have a new identity because of Jesus. Now work out of that new identity, which leads us to thing number three, I forget, I forget who I am. I forget who I am. Colossians 3.24, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord. That's who I am. I'm somebody who's going to receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. He says, you know, but you know, what we would say back to that is, yeah, but sometimes we forget that. We forget that we will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. Why is that important? Because as slaves, they were cut out of the inheritance. Here's the reality for a slave in first century Colossae. They're going to work for this guy that owns this estate. They're going to give their whole life in service to this man. And at the end of their life, is, this, is the slave owner going to bequeath anything to him in his death? No. He's just a servant. He's just a slave. The one who's going to get everything is the son. And these slaves are standing, saying to themselves, you know what, we get nothing. We work hard, we get nothing. And Paul says, no, that's not true. You are a child of the of the uh, owner of heaven you're not the child of the owner you're not the child of the owner of the, the estate the earthly estate you're probably not going to get anything there but you're richer than that you are treasured sons and daughters of god you are precious because of jesus you have an inheritance that is your identity now we just looked at the directions given to a slave in chapter 3 but now Step back with me to chapter 1 where it begins with Paul saying, I don't want you to forget where you came from. Colossians 1 verse 13, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. Now he's going to use a word here. In whom we have redemption. That's a good Bible word, right? You see that and you're like, what does that mean? It simply means to buy. I think that Paul specifically pinpoints and uses this word specifically because he knows the word redemption is a big word if you're a slave because if you're a slave and you have a a, a member of your family who's wealthy they can come along and they can buy you out of slavery the term would be redeem you there could be redemption they could get you out of slavery you would then belong to them and hopefully they would set you free but when he uses the word redemption there every slave their ears picked up and paul's saying do you understand that when jesus came and willingly sacrificed his life for you he paid for you he bought you you are his and then in the context of slavery there in chapter 3 when he says you will receive an inheritance from the lord as a reward, this was the ability for a slave in first century Palestine to be able to say, Christ adopted me, he bought me, I am his. Which means that you don't find an identity in your work, you bring an identity with you to your work. I'm just telling you, if you try to find your identity in your work, you're gonna be frustrated. Most people who are trying to find identity in what they do Eventually, that will let you down. Maybe not today, but eventually that's going to be a problem. Title and position does not give you identity. Jesus' death on the cross, your adoption into the family of God as a cherished son or daughter, that is where you find your identity. And too often, we forget 
who we are. So this changes the way you view yourself. It should change the way you view your work. So we forget who, who we're working for. We forget to bring our heart. We forget who we are. And now it's, it's as if Paul takes the camera lens and he moves it off of the slave and he turns the camera and he starts to hone in on the master. And he's going to talk to the master. Look what he says. This is number four. We forget to treat people like people. Now, wouldn't you agree with me that a lot has happened in the last couple of months? And wouldn't you agree with me that as you've watched your social media and as you've seen the news, you've seen people talking to one another and treating each other not very well? It's, it's really important that we remember that we're always dealing with people. We're not just dealing with some entity that doesn't have feelings. And in our effort to communicate our point, oftentimes, we can get hateful, we can just start screaming, we go on these rants, and somehow, you know, everybody wants to be a preacher all of a sudden. Um, I got something to say, and you need to hear it, right? And so we just, this stream of consciousness stuff, everybody just has something they got to get off their chest. But we forget to treat people like people. That's a lot of what our problem is in our country right now. Colossians 4, verse 1, Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. This is instructive for anyone who has risen to the point that you have people working under you. If you've been fortunate enough to, to rise to some level where you have employees or you have people that work under you, there's a responsibility here to ask yourself, is it fair and is it right? So, you know, you start asking yourself, you know, I, I disciplined this person or I, I had to correct them somehow. Was it fair and right for me to do that in front of their coworkers or should I have taken them to someplace private and done that privately? Would that have been fair and right for me? Would that have been better for that particular employee? And when you start to, to bring those kinds of attitudes to your work, that's the way you're going to start to think. You don't do things to embarrass somebody. You do things because you love people and you want to help people. So sometimes that may mean, hey, I need to correct, but I need to correct you privately. There's a, a leadership uh, expression, correct, challenge privately, praise publicly, right? That, that's just one of the things that we should be as, as people who manage other people. If you're someone who has people in your charge and maybe one day you wake up and you realize, you know what, this employee right here, if I lost them, I would take a major hit. Our company would take a major hit if we lost this person. So you start to ask yourself the question, are we treating them right and fair? Are we paying them what they're worth? If somebody came and hired them away, would it bother me? And if the answer is yes, the next question is, okay, am I, am I treating them well? Am I taking, are they Am I taking advantage of them because I depend so heavily on them, but I'm not really compensating them and giving them the things that they need? Understand that when Paul wrote this, this was revolutionary for the time. Because if you owned an estate and you had slaves, those slaves were nothing more than property. You didn't look at them as people. And here, the command from the New Testament is, don't treat people like property. Treat people like people. Number five, and then we'll close, we forget who we represent. We forget who we represent. I want to switch gears a little bit. The setting for 1 Timothy is the city of Ephesus. 
And Timothy is the pastor of the church at Ephesus. And what you have there is you have Paul writing kind of an instructional couple of letters to Timothy, trying to help him understand how to pastor better. And so he writes in 1 Timothy chapter 6, all who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect. In other words, don't mouth off, don't be disrespectful, don't rip them off, don't undermine them. All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider it their masters consider their masters worthy of full respect so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Paul draws a connection here between the behavior of the slave and the opinion that people will draw of Jesus. It still happens. Jesus has connected his reputation, for better or worse, to you and to me. He has connected his reputation to how you do your job, how you dispatch your duties at work. His reputation rides on what kind of employee you are, what kind of coworker you are how well you do your job, how kindly you do your job. Here's what it means. It means when I come to work, I bring my heart, I bring my best energy, I bring my attitude, I, I, I have respect for others, I speak the truth, I work hard, I work well. Maybe I show up early and stay late. It makes Jesus look good. If on the other hand I show up late and I lie and I can't be counted on to tell the truth, and I backbite, and I gossip, and I stab other people in the back. It makes Jesus look irrelevant, and it makes Jesus look ridiculous because they can see that Jesus is completely gone. He's not even in your life. Here's the question this morning. If you were the only Jesus that people saw, would they have the impression that Jesus was compassionate? Would they have the impression that Jesus was generous? If you were the only Jesus that some people saw, would they have the idea that Jesus is kind? If your life was the only gospel that anybody ever read, what would somebody know about Jesus? We forget that Jesus has linked his reputation to ours. We forget it, but people on the outside don't forget it. They would say things like, you know what, he comes in late. He's disrespectful to our boss. You can't count on him to tell the truth. He calls himself a Christian. You see, they know intuitively. If, if, you, if you're going into the office, you're probably saying or doing something that lets people know that you go to church. You probably once in a while say something to somebody about, um, you know, something the preacher said, or you, you, maybe you listen to Christian music, or maybe there's a Bible on your day. But people figure out that you're religious, and you may not think anybody's watching, you may not think anybody's looking, but trust me, when you declare yourself a Christian, people's ears perk up and they begin to watch you. And how you behave and how you work and how you dispatch your duties has everything to do with the reputation of Jesus. He is counting on us to represent him well. We may forget it. Other people do not. So one final question are you reflecting well the Jesus that gave up his life for you? Are you reflecting well the Jesus who gave up his life for you? That is going to be it for our Off to Work We Go series. Just a reminder that your very best effort, is your boss worthy of it? No. But Jesus is. 
God gave his best for us. God calls us to be better. And you may not be in a passion area today, but I would just encourage you to chip away, chip away, try to get good at your job. I think the better you get at your job, the more competent you feel, the more passion you'll find for whatever it is that you're doing. But ultimately what we want is God to be glorified by the work that we do. Let's pray together. Father, we're so blessed to have the jobs we have. Some people don't have work right now, and, and it's a, that can be a problem. So, Lord, we're thankful. Thankful for the way you provide for us and our family. Father, we're able not only to have many of the essentials, we're able to have uh, extra things, fun things. We're able to travel. We're able to have some nice things once in a while. And, and all of that, Lord, comes from you. Do we work hard? Yes. But we're thankful. And so, Lord, as we go to work, whether it's tonight or tomorrow, whenever we will have to go to work, I pray, Lord, that we'll carry a different attitude. I pray that we will be found bowing our head before we go in and saying, Jesus, I'm yours. I'm yours. I don't belong to this company. I belong to you. And I'm going to live my life and I'm going to do my work today as if your reputation depends on it because it does. And so, Father, I pray for the person who's going to go in with that attitude that you would empower them. I pray that they would come to a place where they start to really enjoy what it is they do, even though everybody else would say, that's ridiculous. Father, our passion isn't about work. Our passion is about you. So we ask you to meet us in that space. Pray it in Jesus' name.